All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. So if you've been paying attention to the news for the last several weeks, you've probably learned that one of the most key, most important issues for the left right now is to be able to discuss sex with third graders. And those of us that find this to be, oh, I don't know, a little bit suspicious are, are now being raked over the coals within the media, Hollywood, etc. But what we're going to do, because every time this happens, every time the left does something extreme like this, and conservatives pointed out, they all of a sudden say, well, this, this isn't happening or this isn't a big deal or you guys are fabricating this in order to make a you know BS culture war that doesn't need to exist. So we're going to actually look at some of the videos that are featuring left-wing teachers discussing what they discuss with the children within our public school system. We're also going to be able to equip you with the arguments that you need in order to address the all-important issue of school choice, because that's been something that's coming up a lot. And when you see what's going on right now, right? Again, not from me. When you see what's going on right now from the left, you're going to want to strongly consider more school choice options within your state. We're going to talk about what that actually entails, why it's good for you and your family, and we're going to equip you with the arguments to be able to respond to all the various accusations you're going to see from teachers' unions and everything else the moment you have the audacity to suggest that you as a parent should have more control over your child's education. All of that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. And before we jump into today's episode, be sure to leave your comments on the YouTube channel, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thanks so much for joining us. All right, let's do some quick introductions. As always, I am your host, Nick Freitas, city member of the Virginia House of Delegates. But other than that, I am a good person. With me, as always, is my beautiful and lovely wife, Tina Freitas. We also have our resident historian and political prognosticator, Christian Hines. Hello, hello, hello. And of course, our producer of not only this, but other several successful shows, Nicholas Hamilton. All righty. So um, today is special because today is Tuesday. And Tuesday, as we all know, is Thomas Sowell. Tuesday. So I'm going to read a quote, which I think is especially relevant, uh, from Dr. Soule. Thomas Soule, talking about the state of American education, once said, the problem isn't that Johnny can't read. The problem isn't even that Johnny can't think. The problem is that Johnny doesn't know what thinking is. He confuses it with feeling. And what I find interesting is that as we look at, again, this, the status of American education, what's been going on within our public schools, what I find is that this is especially relevant because it seems like every time we get in a conversation about how do we improve the status of education and, and we, we come forward with different facts, evidence, approaches, we get hit with a whole lot of feelings. So is that, is the sort of arguments that we're seeing coming from the you know, public school establishment, 
Is that being reflected in what our kids are being taught within school? I think we have two videos that might. All right. Up. Well, let, let's go ahead and let's go ahead and jump into uh, the videos Hamilton's got for us. All right. Let's look at the first one. Hi, I'm a queer teacher, and I 1,000 percent do not support this bill. And yes, I do know what's in it. Bill in itself is just another way to stigmatize the LGBTQ plus community. Kids as young as three and four are actually aware of their gender identity, even if they don't have the language for it. So very aware of who they like and who they don't like. Heterosexuality is pushed on our kids on a daily basis at a very young age. Media, through books, the first Disney movie that you saw. To say that pre-K through third grade are not ready for such topics is actually internalized homophobia and transphobia. We're very much ready for these topics and are way more accepting than adults when it comes to discussing these topics. We can talk about gender, gender assumptions, pronouns, all the things. And it is child development appropriate and age appropriate. It's literally created as just another means to other queer people. Basically say that us existing is not normal. Okay. Okay. Age appropriate. It, oh, it's age appropriate because because it turns out it turns out that third graders are far more accepting of these sorts of concepts. You know what third graders are also far more accepting of? The concept of eating like five pounds of cotton candy in one setting or the idea that unicorns exist, right? Those are some other things that third graders are far more accepting of. But the idea that you would look at something like this, and, and this is saying like three-year-olds, forget third say, graders. Not third graders, it's three-year-olds. <laughs> three-year-olds. It's like, well, three-year-olds are very accepting of all these Because con- they're three. Like at, at what point do you look at this as a parent and go, wait a second, you don't get to you, you don't get to sit here and discuss like they're they're very they're very aware of what they like and don't like. Yeah, they don't like bedtime. <laughs> like this this is the standard now for what we teach a three year old is based off of what this person's perception is of what they like and don't like. Well, the good news is is that ideally somebody like that will not be in the public school system for much longer in the great state of Florida. <laughs> well, I mean it. it Clearly, if, if this is something where, you know, again, it, it's this idea that they're and here, here's what's kind of scary about this. You got to kind of look between the lines. Right. It's not just they know who they like and they don't like. They're very con- they're very aware of their gender identity. Um, OK, at three years old, if you're suggesting to children, um, because that's what part of this is. Right. It's not just them relaying to a teacher what they like or they don't like. It's the teacher then coming alongside and reinforcing certain ideas to that child. And if she's suggesting as young as three, I mean, you're, you're telling me there's nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm sorry. I got to stop you right there. Uh, this person actually identifies as non-binary. So sorry, my bad. <laughs> no, but, but like, I, 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 first off, God bless libs of TikTok. Um, oh yes. Like for just collecting these videos that by the, nobody is forcing the left to publish these things no. on TikTok, right? But they're doing it. They're they're and it's so amazing that like you continuously hear from from other people on the left, this isn't happening. This is, you know, culture war scaremongering from the right. This is, you know, fake news, right wing propaganda. It's not. Yeah. It's being willingly published by people on the left who are openly defending it. Yeah. And saying over and over again, we're proud that we're indoctrinating these three and four and five year olds with, you know, sex and gender ideology. Oh, and it's trans and homophobic. If, if, you you have, if you disagree, you disagree. You're right? a if bigot. You disagree, you're a bigot, and that's and that's why your child needs to be educated by this. You know, well, again. because as far as this person is concerned, they're saying that uh, from a very young age, heterosexuality is pushed on children, and it is. 
I, I let me just bring up another thing that is pushed on children at a very young age. Gravity. I was literally about to say. <laughs> yes. Gravity is pushed on children at a young age. And how dare anybody at this table say that my child cannot fly? At three years old, they know that they can fly. They know that, you know, gravity is just a social construct. And they know they don't like people that tell them they can't fly or to take a nap. That's they right. don't like that how either. How dare you, bigot? Well, and that's really what this comes down to. It's this whole idea that there's, there's, and look. Let's say you're someone that agrees, at least in part, with what this teacher is saying. The question ultimately is not whether or not you agree with this teacher or you disagree with this teacher. The question is, is it the teacher's role or responsibility yes, exactly. to, to push this? And, and I would hope most parents would say, look, one way or the other, I don't want my kid, I don't want my heterosexual teacher talking about their you know, sexual preferences with my three-year-old. And that goes for heterosexual people, too. I don't want any teacher, anyone in authority, talking to my child about sex of any sort, anything along those lines. It's none of their business. That well, is a private issue. And let's be honest here. What, what they're doing is is they're conflating two things, right? Because they're, they're trying to make this all about this idea that, well, no, no, it's just about this is how I identify. And so that's critical for my identity and to be able to express that to children. And so I should be able to express this to children. And then you, you saw the statement, right? They want you to believe that, well, it's the, the cis normative or the heteronormative that's getting pushed on kids. And it's like, okay, wait a second. At, at what point is something a natural reflection of reality versus something that you, the moment you say trans, you're saying, you're admitting that biologically there's, it doesn't comport with psychologically the way you view yourself. And now you're introducing something to a young child. Again, according to this teacher, as young as three, you're introducing a concept to that child that those parents might not be comfortable with. The bad thing about this is that at these very young ages, as our, as parents and as the people who raise children, we are supposed to provide a stable environment for them to learn reality and how to interact with reality. And when you're taking something, just kind of pulling the rug out from under them and telling them that there is no fixed mark, everything is just fluid, mm -hmm. it's whatever you feel, uh, you're not giving them any stable environment. And then we wonder why children are having just catastrophic mental health issues and part oh, well of that's your fault it's because you're a bigot it's because you're not allowing this teacher to do this to your three-year-old you're a bigot and so you're creating i mean that's the argument right you're we're the ones society has created this um unwelcoming in fact you know oppressive environment where their particular identity or the way they self-identify, because it's not recognized in the same way that cisgender or heteronormative society is, therefore we're creating the conditions uh, in which case. So if, if only your three-year-old was exposed to this at an early age, then those conditions wouldn't exist, right? So their argument is we're the problem. And what's so fascinating about that is that every time they tell you this isn't being pushed on your kids, first of all, yes, it is. There's clear proof of it. Second of all, they absolutely believe it should be. Because how do you maintain a morally consistent and intellectually consistent position? If you believe that the reason why kids that, that struggle with gender dysphoria or transphobia or whatever else commit suicides at higher rates or, or have other problems at higher rates, well, then, of course, you also have to believe that the only way that you solve that is by 
inculcating it into ed- their education at a very young age. And if you as the parent aren't willing to do that, then you should be compelled to by the state. I mean, am I wrong? No, I think that you're bringing up an important point here because we were like laughing and joking and we were also kind of stunned mm-hmm. seeing this earlier. But it's important to know that it's not just a laughing matter. It mm-hmm. might have been a few years ago, but it's become an actual fight. As crazy as it sounds, it's become an actual fight. I cannot believe that we're actually debating this seriously and not just joking about it. And we're called the science deniers. Yeah. And the reason that I bring this up is because, like, it's okay to, like, you know, you kind of, part of you wants to just laugh at these things that you see on TikTok or Twitter, but it's no longer just a laughing matter. Like, the fact that 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 piece of legislation in Florida that was passed recently that this teacher was complaining about, the so-called don't say gay bill, which, by the way, is not what it was called. Mm-hmm. The word gay doesn't even appear in the legislation mm-hmm. once. And the whole entire legislation was about not being able to teach sex and gender identities to K through third graders. Yeah. And I've, I've argued with people online about this. And I remember one person said, well, your legislation that you're supporting is directly threatening the very existence of somebody like myself. And my response was, what part of teaching or of banning teaching K through third graders about sex and gender is a direct attack on your identity? Yeah. That is the most hyperbolic claim I've ever seen online. And that is a really high bar to clear. Or, or wait a second. Or it's telling. I'm not talking about for everybody in general that opposed the bill, but for that individual person, right? Because there's been a Jack Posobiec got like banned from Twitter for what a day or two because he used the term groomer. So when you tell me, when you tell me, for instance, Hey, I disagree. I think we should talk about this and this is why. Okay. I disagree with you. We can have a conversation. When you tell me that this challenges my existence, that I have to have the ability to be able to discuss sex with your nine-year-old in public school. Now I'm starting to question, okay, wait a second. Why is that key to your identity? Because that's that's a different conversation. And, and the idea that the moment I act suspicious about this, I'm going to be treated by Hollywood, by the left, by mainstream Democrats, as if I'm a bigot because I'm skeptical of not just you, but anybody talking to my third grader about sex. Not to mention the fact, I'm sorry, you've done such a bang-up job with reading, writing, and arithmetic that you've got all this time to discuss gender theory? Oh, yeah. Remember the uh, the reports in Virginia about um, all of the different test scores in the middle of the pandemic, and they just cratered oh, yeah. across the board? Crater. Well, yeah, so, and, and this so isn't the only one. We have an education crisis on our hands, but the no. real fight is about teaching third graders about gender. Yeah. And it is grooming. That's that's the issue, is that it is grooming. When, when a groomer targets a child um and when i say grooming i'm talking about a pedophile who wants to molest a child they start by targeting a child and making them feel very welcomed and they're very warm with the with the child and then they start introducing reasons why your parent just doesn't understand you and why we need to keep some secrets from your parents Mm -hmm. and why i can make you feel you know it's this whole i will love you like no one else will and this is what real love is. That is absolutely everything these people are doing with these kids. I mean, I saw another video where where they were like, I'm your family now. Your parents don't accept you. I'll wow. accept you. Yeah. And that was a middle school teacher. And 
Well, we've got a preschool teacher, a clip of a preschool teacher in Florida oh here. Gosh. Let's watch this real quick. Man, y'all thought me uh, teaching the children about me being Polly was crazy. But what? not only that, but they also know that I'm gender fluid. Uh, at one point last year, I had explained to them that I was not Miss Lois or Mr. Lois. It's just Lois because I'm not a boy or a girl. And this was all well and good until October when I also explained to them that I'm pagan. So I am also a witch. And at one point I got in a haircut and I got in the sides of my mohawk shaved down. And I come into work and one of the children goes, Lois, are you a boy? You have short hair. And his sister goes, no, Lois is a girl. And a third child, who's my favorite, suddenly yells, no guys, we've been over this. Lois isn't a boy or a girl. Lois is a witch. Duh. So quick question. Yeah. Oh Where God. exactly does witch fall on the gender spectrum? That's that's the, that's the well that's when she got done explaining to her <gasps> whoa, preschoolers. Whoa, whoa. Sorry, yeah, I gotta sorry. stop you there. Again. When when <laughs> they they got done explaining Cheap. gender theory to preschoolers, um, and not just gender theory, but what poly was, oh. what polyamorous was. Yeah, so that. it's the whole idea that I, I, I have multiple partners because, again, another very important conversation to have with preschoolers, apparently. That's when they got into, apparently, theology right? <laughs> and mysticism. Because, and I'm sorry, but a part of me looks at this, I'm like, okay, parents, do are, are any of you like aware of this is going on when you drop your kids off at preschool? Because if I have one more leftist, if I have one more leftist, because we, we showed you two videos. Tina mentioned a third video. Go on libs of TikTok. Just go on libs of TikTok and scroll through it because here's what you're going to find. We're not the ones exaggerating this. And, and as Christian pointed out, this is not something where they're like, oh, you know, secretly, hey, we had a conversation. Somebody asked me about my wife and I corrected them that it was my husband. And so, and they were confused. That's not what's going on. You've got a preschool teacher explaining to the preschoolers, oh, no, 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 I'm not a boy or a girl. I'm a witch in a polyamorous relationship. Right. And to even <laughs> explain that you're polyamorous yeah. to a child means that you are telling them what you like to have sex with. Mm -hmm. That's what you're telling these preschool kids. You're you're telling them what does it for you. And I'm sorry, but that is never something you should be talking to a little oh, child but, about. But, but you heard the other elementary school teacher, Tina. I mean, the reason why they have to do this is because, you know, three-year-olds are a lot more accepting than adults when it comes to issues like this. Yeah, the reason why they have to do this is so that they can continue to groom these children so that, you know, later they can make pedophilia really mainstream. Well, and, and Just wait. Watch. Yeah. I, I had somebody a while back. I, I can't remember who I was talking to, but I said, within 10 years, you're going to see pedophilia move from something that society in general feels is completely unacceptable and criminal to it's a disease or a sickness, which must be understood, to it's something that you cannot discriminate against someone for, to actually this is totally normal to you better celebrate this or you're a bigot. I said within 10 years. Like I am I am not wrong on this. And and it's amazing because again, even when you make that claim they'll come back and say that there's something wrong with you, but this is why so many parents right now are looking at what's going on because no matter what democrat 
talking heads or teachers unions say, I mean, don't get me wrong. Parents were already mad because schools were actively discriminating against their child if they were Asian in Virginia. And that's not hyperbole. That's a federal judge. We had to correct that this year because there was a school in Northern Virginia that was deliberately um, discriminating against Asian students, right? Parents were already mad about that. And then when we started to say, hey, there's all this other stuff going on in our school with things like CRT and now with all this stuff with like the sex talk, like, well, that's not really happened. Well, now they're going on to libs of TikTok and they're thinking, oh my gosh, this is really happening. I want options. And the Democrats are coming forward and say, well, you don't get them. Or even better, what they're saying is, no, no, no you, you have options. You can go to this government school or you can go to this government school. Like, Who was it in the in the state house that actually made that argument? Skylar Van Valkenburg, who's yeah. a who's who's not only a Democrat delegate, but he's also a public school teacher. And and when I said, look, what we want, what parents want is genuine choice, he responded with, well, you know, I appreciate the delegates' fact-free speech, but they have plenty of choices. And then he proceeded to list off a bunch of options within a government system. It's like, okay, wait a second. So if one store took over all the grocery stores in America and said, what do you mean you don't have options? You can go to any one of our stores. Nobody would consider that real choice. But for the left, no, that's all the choice you get. It's whatever government monopolized system they control. Well, I think that leads us into our argument of the day, which is uh, school choice. And the question is, what is school choice and why is it the answer to the madness we are currently witnessing? You mean, so like as far as what is school choice, I think there's a lot of different options that you can have within that. Now, like what what Delegate Van Valkenburg was suggesting was that if you have options within a government system, then you have choice. And okay, on some technical level, that's true. But I think what most of us are talking about when we talk about school choice is the idea that parents should be equipped or empowered to have options that are not just limited to what is essentially a government school. And there's a couple different ways you can achieve that. There's you know charter schools, which is still a government school. One of the other ones that's gaining a lot of popularity is ESAs, education savings accounts. And that's the idea that, okay, there's a certain amount of dollars allocated to your student through state, local, and federal funds. And instead of saying, all right, your child is going to be assigned to government school based off of their address, and then the funds allotted for your child are all going to that school. Instead, those funds, or a portion of those funds, because we can't control federal, would go into an education savings account. And you would be able to, if you wanted to take your child to the exact same school they're going to, like right now, the dollars would follow them to that school. If you wanted to take them to a different school, dollars would follow them to that school. If you wanted to do some combination where they take certain classes here, but then they get tutors from that, you could allocate the dollars. Like, so basically it would be, you have money to allocate toward your child's education. The state is not going to micromanage that process. And I think, I mean, that's typically what I mean with respect to school choice, um, it, homeschool options, things like that. So there's a spectrum. It's it's funding students, not systems. That's a great. Yeah, I love is, that term. Is, is what it term. is. And we saw during COVID even where they shut all these schools down. Kids missed the second half of their school year. They were delayed in starting the new school year. There were so many. And there, there are other areas that just finally started opening schools up again. And here in Virginia, in the Virginia Constitution, uh, compulsory education is in the Constitution. The government has to pay for education for the children who live in this state and in the Commonwealth. And so when they shut down all the schools, they were violating that student's well, their right argument to is, an education. Well, see, and, and this a- is- According to the Constitution. Well, this is the crazy part, right? 
is because when they say every student is, so every student is entitled to a, a like a quality education, and it's got to be free and compulsory, which means you don't got to, you are paying through it through your taxes, but it's not like you show up somewhere and you pay someone for education. And then the second component of that is compulsory. You have to send your child to a government school unless you can afford an alternative. Now, the whole debate going on when they were shutting down all the public schools and doing in-school learning or they were transitioning to online was, well, what, what constitutes a quality education? Well, when the government is the one making the rules, the government decides what a quality education. So what's a quality education? Well, unless they specify it, it's whatever politicians tell you a quality education is. And that's, I mean, that's essentially what they were doing. And it was amazing because even when, even when parents reacted to that and started setting up things like learning pods where they would pay a teacher, the teacher would sit there and do their online Zoom class. And then the teacher realized that, gosh, some of my students still need in-person training. I'm willing to assume that risk. The parents are willing to you know, assume that risk. Uh, the, you know, the science suggests that there isn't some huge transmission issue from having a small learning pod. And oh, by the way, the parents are paying me to do it. Right? It was teachers' unions and public school teachers or public school um, lobbyists that were trying to shut those down. Right. And their argument was that this isn't fair to the students that don't have that available to them. Mm -hmm. And I just I find that incredible that they would hold back some students because other students aren't 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 taking advantage of the same uh, situation or can't take advantage of the same situation. So rather than fund the students that can't mm -hmm. and helping them to be able to to do this like the other students, Instead, they just hold everybody back. Mm -hmm. You know what I find so interesting is um, I, I saw this tweet this morning from Van, from Delegate Van, Valk uh, Van Valkenburg, actually, who follows me on Twitter. And he was complaining about some of the appointments that Youngkin was doing within uh, the State Department of Education. And he ended up finishing his tweet with, I'd rather fund public schools and make them world class. Well, going back to what you were saying earlier, Nick, about, well, the government gets to decide what world class is mm -hmm. or what quality is. You know what the government's definition of quality is now? I just pulled up the test score results of the 2021 <laughs> to yeah. 20 or, or of the 2020 to 2021 SOL scores. And for all the faults of the SOL, and I'm not necessarily defending mm -hmm. um, standardized testing, but it's one of the handful of statistics that we have to measure, you know, where things are versus where they were before the pandemic. And according to the government, apparently a 54% pass rate on mathematics or a 69% passing rate in English versus what used to be a 82% and 78% before the pandemic, that's now quality. Mm -hmm. uh, even absence of the gender and sex indoctrination stuff that's happening in the public schools, even take that out of the equation for a second. Mm -hmm. There is still no argument that can reasonably be made against funding students and not systems. Just look at the test scores that mm -hmm. took place mm -hmm. in the middle of COVID. Mm -hmm. And so it, uh, and then when you throw in things like these TikToks that you're, you know, that, that public school teachers are putting out all over the country, you've just got to ask yourself, what the hell is happening to our public schools? So Nick, I got another question for you. Why is it that the left claims that school choice is racist? This is, so this is a good question. Because I think this is one that confuses a lot of school choice advocates when they hear it. They'll hear, you know, school choice is racist. And sometimes they make this nuanced argument that, well, it enhances discrimination, like white flight and all these other things. Um, there's actually another reason in the South 
why school choice is sometimes associated with racism. And I, I think this is important to understand when we're making the argument, because if you don't understand this, if you don't understand the history, um, then you can get you can alienate someone without intending to do so. When they were desegregating schools in Virginia, and, and if, you, if you want to read more about that, read about Barbara Johns, just an incredibly brave young woman that fought against school segregation. But when we were going through the whole concept of uh, Brown versus Board of Education and determining the whole separate but equal was you know, not, in, um, not in keeping with, with the American intention and, and whatnot, um, that didn't mean that all of the schools in the South under Jim Crow just automatically said, oh, well, I guess we lost legally. Here we go. That's not what happened. There was something in Virginia called mass resistance. And what there was is there, there were. There were a lot of racist parents and there was a lot of racist organizations. Um, I should point out, I think this is fair because you want to talk about hard history. Democrats. Led by Democrats that said that, all right, well, we're going to defund some of these public schools. We're just not going to send tax dollars to the schools, or we're going to say that we have no public schools in a particular county, and they're all essentially going to be charter schools, or they're going to be private schools, so that they can continue to segregate. right? So that, that happened. right? And, and nobody within the school choice movement that I'm aware of is denying that that happened or denying that it was morally reprehensible. But understand that that was not being that was not like a the sort of school choice argument that is being made now, where we're saying no, we want all parents to be able to have these options, and we want the dollars allocated for those students to follow those students into whatever option their parents choose. Um, and, and in fact, the students what are the students that are being failed the most by the public school system as it currently stands are those in the inner cities. It is majority minority schools which are suffering under the current system. And it's us that are coming forward and saying, my gosh, that, that parent was failed by that school, that they're, they're watching their child being failed by that school. It doesn't matter how much more funding you've pumped into it. It doesn't matter how many more times you've promised us you're going to change it. It's not working. That parent wants other options. Let's, let's let them take the dollars somewhere else. So the reason why they say it's racist is because there is a, there is a, a history there associated with the term school choice and mass resistance and whatnot. That again, this this isn't as relevant in other parts of the country, but it is still relevant in the South, and you, we should be aware of it. But the the idea that people would continue to say, "Oh, well, that's what you really want." Okay, well, if you're going to say that's what I really want, based off of what somebody did before I was born, what do I get to claim about what you really want when you continue to consign these children to a school that failed their grandparents, their parents, and now them, and you just insist that nope, that's where they got to go. And, and if you want to talk about school choice and racism, okay, well, let me ask you this question. When Barack Obama got elected president, right, and received like overwhelming support from the teachers unions, just like every other Democrat presidential candidate, when he went into Washington, D.C., and they were debating and they were pushing to remove dollars from the charter school there, who was it that showed up to defend the charter schools? It wasn't a bunch of deep south white conservatives it was minority communities within D.C. You saw the same thing up in New York City. It was minority communities that were coming up and going, you are not taking away my child's charter school. This is the first opportunity they've had in their life to be able to get a decent education in order to you know, rise above difficult circumstances. And they had to relent. They had to back down. So uh, again, this idea that you're not going to look at what I think is, is maybe not racist, but it, it falls within that, that category of, of the bigotry of low expectations. If you're not going to count that as racism, and instead you're going to point to something that happened you know, at this point, what, 50, 60 years ago? 
And you're going to say that that's racist? I, that's just, I think that's completely intellectually dishonest. And well, what happened 50, 60 years ago was racist. Yes. But oh, yeah, it's, it was. It's, it's the idea no, that. What so let me just think. What happened then was absolutely racist to suggest that because someone now wants school choice and because someone used that term that they want the same that you're thing. now racist, yes. that's, in, that's absolutely the, the idea that anybody today who's advocating for school choice is really just a segregationist at mm -hmm. heart is ridiculous. Considering that some of the biggest advocates for school choice, as you said, said mm -hmm. are those that are in inner cities mm -hmm. I, I it just it you see this over and over and over again on the left where any argument that you make is either steeped in bigotry racism sexism homophobia it it, it, it it's never about oh well i just disagree with you on the policy and i yeah. think that my position will will yield better results it's you have nefarious evil mm -hmm. intentions and I think you're a bad person for disagreeing with. Well, me. It's, it, you have nefarious intentions, so I don't have to listen to your argument, and neither should anyone else. Because if they listen to your argument, maybe they also have nefarious intentions. It's a way. It's not a way to. It's not a way to even um, win a debate. It's a way to shut down debate mm -hmm. by embarrassing and intimidating people into not speaking out. That's what they're doing, and and it's it's again. I think it's not only intellectually dishonest. I think it's morally reprehensible. Well, they also tend to want to say that if you don't like public education, if you feel like public education isn't the best option, then you hate education, period. <laughs> yeah. And you hate educators, which you is know what I'm could reminded be, of? couldn't be further from the, from the truth. I, I can't remember the entire quote off the top of my head, but what immediately comes to my mind when you bring up that point is that quote from Frederick Bastiat that, you know, the socialists declare that oh, yeah. anything that's not provided by the state you know, if you don't support it, then you must be against it. So we say we're against public education. And so therefore the socialists say we're against education. Mm -hmm. It's the equivalent of saying, because I don't want forced collectivization of farms, I'm in favor of people starving to death. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't want the government to determine how wheat is grown, that I don't want any wheat grown. Like, no, that's not, there, there is an alternative to the authoritarian approach to all of these issues. And, and look, I'm sorry, I don't mind calling it the authoritarian approach because when you're the one coming forward saying it must be this way and I am going to confiscate your dollars and I am going to force you to participate unless you can f afford an alternative, I'm sorry, at what point do I not get to question the authoritarian nature of that approach? So maybe it isn't racist, but what about the charge that school choice would lead to public schools losing money or resulting in greater disparities between kids? Well, so two questions there. One was, people come to the conclusion that, or people claim that if you do this, it'll lead to government schools losing money. I'm going to quote, I'm going to quote, uh, Cord Angelus on this because he has the best. Every time somebody says that politicians, teachers union, he always responds with why would the funds leave public schools? Because remember when we talk about ESAs, we're not, we're not cutting education by one dime and we're not removing. We are not like as, as, as lawmakers, as anyone's, we are as allocators, we're not removing one dime from a government-run school. So why do they assume that money would leave it? Well, because they know that if they were open to competition, if they were actually exposed to a competitive environment, they know if parents had chosen, they wouldn't choose them. And as we say in Richmond, one of the worst things that we see down there is when people say, when you got a monopoly, keep it. And so I think that's the first response to that is the moment you say, oh, well, this is going to this is going to cost funds to leave uh, government schools to go where well, it will follow the student and where will it follow the student to to the school they're attending. 
okay, so what's the alternative? This, the child moves to a different school, but the funds should stay with the school they're no longer at? Like if, if, if you think that's a good system, you've just articulated another reason why I don't want you educating my child. Well, and it's a very top-heavy environment. Uh, the bureau, the bureaucrats are making, it, there's a lot of bureaucrats. They're making the money while the teachers are still not making enough money. And it's, it's really, really sad. And also in the area of special needs, that's another area where we need more school choice because we see all the time where children with varying, uh, special needs are lumped in together and it's this cookie cutter environment. And it's not causing any of those students to thrive because they each have different issues that need to be addressed differently. And if their dollars could follow the student, then other options would come into the arena and they'd be able to take their child to a perfectly fit, you know, education for their child. And we talk about diversity and education is very diverse or, or learning styles are very diverse, but, ed, but, Public education is not diverse. If you look at, I mean, they, they talk about diversity, but they only want it as far as your skin tone. They don't want any diversity as far as how we teach, how we well, learn. See, this, this, is the part where, this is the part where Skylar and them would come in and say, well, that's not true at all. We have all these different programs. We have, okay, but here's the question. If, you're, if none of the programs you are offering through the government system that you require me to finance and you require me to attend, if none of those systems are providing my student what they need to succeed, what is my option? You don't get one because we, we've exhausted what the government will allow you to have. And, and, it's, and I, I think and, it's... And the funds are earmarked. Yeah, well, I the, think it's... Any funds that come from the, the federal government or the state government, they always come down with mandates to be used or oftentimes to be used in certain ways. And so it, it makes for a very difficult situation for a parent who has a, a child with special needs or, or with a learning disability, whether or not that's funded. Well, and it's, again, it's the whole, it's the whole choice component here. If, if one of the options you have generously allowed me, you know, representative, uh, if one of them don't work, what, what's again, what's my next step? What's my next option? You don't have one. And if you want another one, well, you can go pay for it yourself. Like, wait a second, I'm already paying for these ones. The only reason I can't afford the other one is because you took my money to pay for these ones. Right? That's the other part that gets like lost in translation here. I, I can have other options if I can afford them, but maybe the reason I can't afford them is because you took my money to pay for this one that you're forcing me to go to. And I think that's, I mean, I, that's problematic. The, the other question there was the one of, what about disparities between students? And I think there's two things we got to address here. One is if, if disparities between students are the reason why we can't have school choice, why isn't it the reason that we can't claim that public education is failing? Because if that's the measure you're going to judge, well, then I got bad news. Public school has failed and failed miserably when it comes to disparities between students. We see rampant disparities. And we've seen rampant disparities despite the fact that we've drastically increased the spending per pupil or the, the amount of money we spend on education over the last 40, 50 years. So again, whenever they throw these terms out, always remind that like, wait a second, if you're going to judge us by that standard, then we get to judge you by that standard. And guess what? You done screwed up. Right. The, just, just like the socialization yeah. uh, concept, you know, they, that's one of the big buzzwords we hear. I mean, mm -hmm. we're homeschool parents, right? Mm -hmm. So we constantly get told, oh, what about 
socialization just on cue every single time. And it just, it lets you know that these are the talking points. Mm -hmm. They, the the people who are regurgitating this, they do, they do it without even realizing that they're doing it, which tells me they've been indoctrinated to do it. Well, and there's, there's another component to your on, on disparities because this there's another interesting factor here. Um, a lot of times whenever you see a disparity, the left automatically comes to the conclusion that if there's a disparity between two students, then it, there's a racial component or there's a sexist component or there's, there's a, a spending deficit or whatnot. And, and all of those can potentially be true. Those, those can be reasons. But I, I was explaining to somebody when they were asking me about equity. They're like, what is your guys' hang up with equity? I said, well, I have no problem with the term equity. All that means is fair and just. I have a problem with the way that you guys measure equity because you measure equity by saying that, oh, well, there's a disparity between these two students on their math scores. So clearly there must be something nefarious associated with that. Well, no, not necessarily. That, that's, one, uh, that's one potentiality. It's not the only potentiality. Secondly, what if we have vastly different objectives for our lives? Like if, if someone wants to be a neurosurgeon, there's going to be a certain amount of effort and a certain amount of you know, academic rigor and a certain amount and a certain educational career path that is, you know, necessary for them to achieve that objective. If somebody else wants to be a school teacher or if somebody else wants to go into the space program or if somebody else wants to be a police officer, that's going to be a very different setup. But I can guarantee you this much, the neurosurgeon is going to make a whole lot more than the cop. Does, does that mean the cop is now victim of some sort of inherent disparity within society? No, they had different objectives. They had different skill sets. They had different passions. They had different preferences. And they made decisions in accordance with those preferences, which led to certain outcomes. And to automatically say that, well, disparity equals something bad happened. Well, no, that, that, that's one explanation. It's not the only explanation. Not to mention the fact that if, if a child, you know what, has no desire to go to college and you're going to measure a school based off of, well, how many of your students went to college versus how many of your students went to trade school versus how many of your students did something else, again, is that an accurate way to measure whether or not that education provided for the needs of that student based off of what they wanted to do with their lives or was it determined by some bureaucrat or politician that decided they knew what was best? Yeah, well, I mean, we're trapping kids in failing, I mean, trapping them in these cookie cutter situations where there is no disparity, which means there is no diversity between I mean, well, and, 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 mentally. Again. I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at this thinking at some point people go their separate ways mm -hmm. and they make different choices for their life. And we want that. We well, want that kind of diversity in our, in our society. We want people that, that do all these different things. And at some point that is what is going to happen. But these kids need the options. Some of these kids, because some of these kids, there's this disparity uh, between areas because they're being trapped in this school yeah. and they, they don't get to explore other options. They don't, they don't get to follow their dream or, or their interests. They just, they just have to well, I think, check and, off the boxes. And again, the, the one thing, just to kind of wrap up that thought, a disparity as a result of bigotry is always wrong, should be opposed, and we should always collectively look for ways to oppose any sort of disparity which results or, or which occurs as a result of, of some form of bigotry. But it is not fair to automatically conclude that when a disparity exists, that's the root cause. All right, certain disparities exist because people voluntarily make different decisions. 
other disparities exist because sometimes people make bad decisions, right? And that's a little bit different. And the response to those things is different than a disparity which exists as a result of some sort of, you know, institutional bigotry. All right, Nick, give us the three-minute summary as to how we should make the argument for school choice. Oh, okay, so a a multi-decade debate in three minutes. Thank you, Hamilton. I appreciate that. Um, I would do a couple of things. One, as always, whenever you're talking to somebody, whenever this issue comes up, define your terms. What do you mean by school choice? What do they mean by school choice? What do you mean by public schools versus what do you mean by government-controlled schools? That's really important. And it is important to understand that what we're talking about within our public education system is government-run schools. When we talk about school choice, we're saying that there should be options outside of government-run schools. There should be also be options within government-run schools. That's where you get things like charter schools. But we also want to fight for things like education savings accounts. And as Christian pointed out earlier, one of the best ways to, to kind of sum this all up is we want to fund students, not systems. We want to fund the ability for parents and students to work with teachers in order to find the best educational opportunities for them, as opposed to having it being controlled by politicians and bureaucrats. Now, one of the most common arguments that you're going to get against this is that if you allow funds to follow students, you're going to have certain public schools that lose dollars, or you're going to increase discrimination. And the point that you need to remind people of is this. If you're worried about discrimination, there is no worse system within U.S. history for input or for um, imposing discrimination than the public school system and the government run schools. They were some of the worst purveyors of that within U.S. history. So all we're asking for here in order to increase individual options is to say that when dollars follow students, you now create a marketplace of ideas so that you can actually have an educational system every bit as diverse as the student body that it's actually going to serve. One of the other arguments that you'll get is, well, what about accountability? This is something that I always love to hit back with and say, nothing is more accountable or nothing is more accountable to you as the customer than when you can choose to go somewhere else. But if the government is taking your money, forcing you to put it toward a particular outcome or a particular system, and then requiring you by law to send your child to that system, and then saying, well, no, 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 you still have options. You still have the ability to have accountability of that system. You get to vote every two years. Or you get to vote every four years for your local school board members. That's not real choice. You would never accept that if you were talking about buying a car or buying groceries or buying a house. You want options because options provides not only a diversity of services and goods that you can have access to, but it also increases the overall quality as people compete for your service as a customer. And at the end of the day, that's what this is about, is getting your child the best education possible, and you're not going to get that through a government monopoly. So that's the thing that we want to emphasize is that ultimately this is not about one politician or one ideology forcing their particular worldview or approach to education on your child. It's about creating an environment where you have options. And if they're not willing to accept that, then the next thing that you need to ask them is, why are they imposing an authoritarian choice when we have all these other options that are readily available and we have the data to prove that they work to include working for those students, which we have all talked about, are in the most need of being able to escape a schooling system which is currently failing them. Nick, I think you have uh, some recommended reading for us. I do. I have a couple recommendations right now. So one of them is Thomas Sowell's Charter Schools and Their Enemies. This is a great book. If you're looking for a primer that will equip you with the sort of arguments that you need with a lot of academic rigor, Thomas Sowell, Charter Schools and Their Enemies. Also, go on uh, Uncommon Knowledge. You can also look at an interview we did on the book. Very, very good. Also, Corey DeAngelis with schoolchoicefacts.org. 
Courtney Angelus has been like just an utter champion. I mean, you can read his stuff that the research he's done over at Cato, but I would I would highly encourage you to follow him on Twitter at uh, DeAngelis Corey uh, on Twitter. He gives you daily updates about kind of the status of what is going on with the effort to fund students instead of systems all across the country. Also, if you are anywhere near Virginia, um, there is a Virginia Education Summit coming up. It's all about putting children first. It's at the Virginia Crossings Hotel and Conference Center in Richmond, Virginia, uh, presented by Middle Resolution Policy Network. This is going to be May 6th and 7th of this year. You're going to have Ian Pryor there, Congressman Bob Good, uh, Senator Patricia Rucker from West Virginia. They've done some incredible uh, school choice very, very recently in West Virginia. That's all going to be interesting. But if you want more information on there, you can go to the Middle Resolution Policy Network. Just Google that. It'll give you the information about what's going on in this summit, May 6th and 7th. Also, if you're looking for resources uh, for, for legal defense, Homeschool Legal Defense Association, HSLDA, great organization all over the country. They will help you. They will get you connected. They're, they're both there for legal resources, but there, there's also a lot of networks that come up as a, as a result of this. Um, you know, Here in Virginia, we have things like the uh, Home Educators Association of Virginia. You'll be able to find similar organizations in whatever state you live in. Those are a great place to network and find resources in order to make you successful, both as a homeschooler, but also to get the additional resources that you need to make arguments for greater choice, parental involvement, and creating the sort of diverse educational system that meets your child's needs in some, instead of some politician or bureaucrat. Well, we know there are a lot of great options for schooling outside of the public school system. And I even went to a charter school down in North Carolina when I uh, graduated right after middle school. And that really led me onto a, a great path for uh, college. Uh, but Nick, Tina, since I've gotten to know y'all over the past two or so years, I've gotten to see y'all, you know, actively homeschooling and, and have always been impressed by it. And I'm wondering what led y'all to that decision. It was, it was kind of, <laughs> so honestly, you, you want to know what led us to homeschool? None of the things we just talked about. That, that's kind of the craziest part. None of the things, we started homeschooling basically out of necessity initially. I was getting out of first special forces group. I was stationed up at Fort Lewis, Washington. Um, you know, we, we really weren't sure where we were going to end up yet. I had a couple of different job opportunities. And the bottom line is we needed to, our, our oldest daughter at that point was six. She was going into first grade. Yeah. So she had gone to kindergarten in DuPont, Washington. Yeah. And uh, that was during the Obama election <laughs> time of year. Uh, right Nick, after. Nick was in Iraq at the time. Yeah, you yeah, were yeah. Uh, when Obama was elected. And, and it was interesting because um, I remember realizing how political can, even kindergarten was when the teacher, when Lily's teacher uh, told the class to go home and ask your parents who they're voting for for president and if it's not Barack Obama, ask them why they don't want to vote for the first black president of the United States. She That's how that? she framed it up. Yeah, you remember that. Well, you might have been gone. Oh well, I was in Iraq. I didn't know. <laughs> and, um, and I told my daughter to tell her that it's because Barack Obama um, voted for partial birth abortion. <laughs> and... I didn't tell her everything about partial birth abortion, but, but twice he defended partial birth abortion in the yeah. Senate. And I said, it is because he thinks it's okay to kill a baby as long as it's still in mommy's tummy. <laughs> and I was pregnant at the time, I think. And, um, and she was mortified. My <laughs> five-year-old child was thinking, 
oh my goodness, somebody thinks it's okay to kill a baby. How could they? And, and it didn't matter to her whether it was in the tummy or not. And I know that sounds like a really extreme answer to give to my five-year-old, but I decided that if the teacher was going to play this game, (laughs) I knew a game worth two of that and she could go and tell the class. So I said, please go. And when the teacher calls on you and asks, please tell them that. And she did. (laughs) That's our girl. Well, and, and so we're, we're leaving Fort Lewis, Washington. We've got to come up with some sort of educational solution for our, our kids. And so, you know, we started homeschooling and Tina looked at me like, oh, we started homeschooling. Because <laughs> Tina really did like the well, absolute if, brunt If you would have work. asked me if we would ever homeschool, I, of course, would have said no. We weren't <laughs> homeschooled as, as, yeah. as students. Um, I experienced public school and private school. So yeah. did Nick. And I had always grown up thinking that public or private, uh, sorry, uh, homeschool kids were weird and awkward <laughs> and, and unsocialized. Yeah. And it's really funny because, um, there were a few reasons why they were awkward. I mean, cause there were, everybody remembers like the jean dresses and bobby socks, <laughs> um, and not that, not that we're judging anybody that wears jean dresses and bobby socks. We're yes. Not, we're judging you. Know. you. Um, No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm not judging you. But I am saying that there was a stigma and the stigma actually existed because there was quite a while where homeschooling wasn't legal and you had to hide it. You had to hide the fact that you were homeschooling. And that was why these kids came off awkward and maybe unsocialized is because they could not go into public during the school day very often because homeschooling was it's grounds to be turned wow. in. Yeah. And so let's not forget what, you know, we're talking about the history of school choice. Let's talk about the history of homeschool yeah. and anti-choice. And, uh, well, and I, I think the, the other thing too, is once we got out to, once we got out to Virginia and it was like, okay, this is where we're going to live. Um, we still didn't, the plan was not to homeschool all of our children all the way through high school because Tina and I also are looking at each other like, okay, we can handle like the simple addition and subtraction. Once they start getting into algebra and God help us like pre-calculate calculus or trigonometry yet yeah, daddy is of no use at this point. And so we said, okay, well, once we, once we get settled, then we'll re-enroll our kids into public. School. And that's what we did. We got settled. We re-enrolled our kids in public school. Well, not until fifth grade. So fifth grade, we homeschooled for four years, and then but then all three of our kids went into public school, right? And it was like a year and a half, and we were done. We were absolutely we were absolutely done. And and the primary reason, and and I always tell people this: the teachers our kids had, we really liked. Um, We thought they worked really hard, but they were they had to spend a significant amount of their time putting together lesson plans to make sure that they were in compliance with state local and federal mandates um when a kid in the class when a when a kid in 5th grade walks over and tells my daughter that she's going to beat her effing ass right and my 5th grade daughter is like this girl wants to beat me up and the teacher can essentially do very little about it um and then not to mention the fact that there was all of this you want to talk about the socialization you know, I can't believe I, I hear story. I hear horror stories from friends of mine whose kids walk into the bathroom in middle school on two kids having sex, and I'm like, "Oh, is is that the sort of socialization you bargained for?" Because we're we're trying to prevent that kind of socialization. So we we just we got confronted with these things. We're like, "Look, this is not just a problem of you know bad socialization because that's the other side of that coin. 
it's not just the fact that, you know, the teachers aren't being empowered to be able to really control and teach their classes. It's not just the, the academics are not meeting our kids' individual needs because all three of our children learn very differently and they have very different life goals. Um, it's all of those things in combination with one another. Plus, more and more, we started to see it then, and this was like over 10 years ago. But now when I'm looking at this stuff going on within the classroom, my kids never had to contend with this with their teachers. Now it's like, look, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to get the government to force you to live your life the way I think you should. I'm not. But you're sure as hell not going to use your authority within the public school system to teach my children that because I don't vote the same way you do, or but because I follow a Christian worldview, that there's something wrong or bigoted with us. Like, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not paying taxes for the privilege of having my child taught that their parents are bigots because I believe that, oh, I don't know, there's male and female in the world, right? Like, I'm, I'm not paying for that. And... And look, homeschooling was, you know, tough at times. I mean, and again, the brunt of this fell on Tina because, you know, I was working full time and then in the legislature and. Yeah, it was, it was definitely a lot of work. And I wouldn't say that necessarily homeschooling is for absolutely everybody. No. The other thing, too, is that I think some people have this idea that, well, I'm homeschooling because I don't like what's going on within our public school system. And when they first start homeschooling, they usually have almost kind of like two ideas. One is they're protecting their kids from the bad socialization and they almost expect the academics to kind of suffer as a result. Or, or they think the academics are going to suffer because they're not perfectly replicating what's going on in public school. They think they have to recreate a classroom environment. Yes. And it's not true. No. You can, especially in, in uh, elementary school, these kids, you would be amazed at how much time is wasted. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a, a huge element of school that is childcare. And yeah. I, I know that I'm going to get a lot of hate probably for, for this, but please just examine it. You are able to go and do the things you go and do because someone else is tending to your child. That is, that is childcare. Well, not, not to uh, mention, not to mention the fact like with teachers, um, when a teacher has a class of 25, 30 students, She's going to spend the majority of her time that she's not in front of the class providing general instruction with the students that need it the most or the students that are being so disruptive that there's a disciplinary issue, right? So if you're the student that it excels or does really well, and again, for our kids and some subjects, that was them and other subjects that was not them. But the, the bottom line was, is there, there was, there was no real ability for that teacher. And it's not, it's not because the teacher's not doing a good job. There's no real ability for that teacher to say, you know what? Hey, you're doing really fast. I want you to go ahead on this other chapter or follow this. And for this, te- this student over here, I'm going to give you more of, of my time. Now, they've tried different ways to, to try to facilitate that, but it's always difficult within a government-run system. Well, in homeschooling, if our child was excelling at something, we didn't have to slow him down to keep up with the rest of the class. We could, let them, we could let them expand, and then we spent more time on the subjects where they needed help with. Not to mention the fact that our ability to expose them to um, you know, concepts or ideas or trips or things like that where I don't got to get a permission slip when you know, we want to take the kids somewhere and there's a learning environment within that family vacation or, or something else. We can adapt their lesson plans to what we're doing. Well, one of the things I was going to mention when I was talking about childcare, and yeah. I know that that's a sensitive topic, The point, the reason I brought that up is because most of your child's education can be done in about three hours. Yeah. And in homeschool, 
I wasn't saying, edu- you know, public education is childcare in order to be a jerk. I was saying <laughs> it because there is a lot of wasted time that isn't necessary for your child's education. They're waiting in lines. They're waiting for uh, lunch. They're waiting for recess. They're, I mean, waiting, waiting, waiting for the class to settle down, waiting for this student, waiting for the teacher. They spend so much time in this limbo where they're just kind of waiting to learn. Yeah. Whereas with us, we could just roll right into the next, you're done with your assignment, you're finished with your reading, we're going to roll into the next uh, thing, whatever it is that we've got, and then you're done, you know? So my kids would start school at like nine in the morning, and they'd be done right after lunch. They'd, yeah. they'd eat a little lunch, finish up their final thing, and be done. Or By the same token, there was other days where there was a particular assignment or whatnot, and they'd kind of like you know goofed off or something where eight o'clock at night, they're finishing their assignment. And, and what was so great about that is one of the life lessons that was taught um, kind of just inherently by that sort of arrangement was when you get your work done to standard, you're done. You're, you're not sitting around arbitrarily waiting because you have to. Well, you it's think about school, your... think about how much ha- homework. When we put our yeah. kids back into school for that one and a half years, I could not believe how much homework they had. They were at school for what, seven hours? Yeah. And then they came home and had another two hours of, of, of schoolwork to do. Yeah. And I'm telling you, no wonder these poor kids are so burned out. The, the other thing, and I, and I wanted, this is something else I want to let people know. Homeschooling today is not homeschooling 20 years ago. Um, you know, when you're like dodging five O to make sure you don't get, you know, <laughs> you know, arrested or something like the, the co-ops that they have, the online resources that they have. I, I went to a, I went to a homeschool fair the other day with, with one of my kids, not the other day, it was like last year, but we went there and they had everything from advanced math to like 3d printing to Latin to blacksmithing. And, and it's getting better by the way, oh, because more and more people, maybe because of, some of the TikToks that we've seen, some of the COVID. other issues with CRT, COVID. There's so many yeah. just general leftist indoctrination in schools. There's so many people that are starting to pull their kids out of the public school system and they're putting them in either homeschool co-ops or they're pulling them into private schools or charter schools. Uh, enrollment for those three things are going through the roof yeah. and public school enrollment is dropping. Mm-hmm. And so as more and more people put their kids into either homeschool or, or, or private school or whatever it is, the quality of those things are going to get better because the marketplace is growing. Yeah. And and it's yeah. so like all these concerns of, about socialization or the quality of the care or, you know, are my kids actually going to learn something? Cause I, you know, I, I'm not an expert on these fields. How can I teach them? Those were concerns 10, 20, 30 years yeah. ago. They're, they're increasingly becoming less and less of an issue compared to the alternative, especially considering that the alternative is people that are demanding that you're, you're a bigot unless you allow them to yeah. teach their third grader about sex and gender. At, at the homeschool co-op I taught at, because I got asked to teach some classes, and one of the classes I taught was government. Well, I'm a sitting state legislator. I could take them through the entire process. I could go through. We could arrange. I mean, it was one class a week. For two semesters, that cost parents $25 per student per month. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what the cost was. Per class. And, and they, were, they right. were learning about local, state, and federal government from a sitting legislator. Now, again, some people like say, well, Nick, you're an idiot and I don't like you. But that's fine. You didn't have to take my class. 
But if another parent liked my class, they could, and, and there was options there. And it wasn't just that, like you could do, we had other people that were teaching math classes that not only were really good educators, but had incredible practical experience applying mathematics in a way that would, you know, inspire a child to be like, hey, you're not just doing this because it's rote learning like you're, or memorization. You're doing this because here's the way you can apply this skill set once you have it. And like to your point, the, the options are just getting bigger and bigger. So the, the thing I tell people is one of the biggest things that scares people out getting into homeschooling, aside from like maybe losing a second income, right? Because that's a big part of it. You, there's a parent that has to be there for it is this idea that you're going to somehow fail your kids. And all I would tell you is that, one, this is not an either-or proposition. Parents need to understand, you can send your child to a public school, and if that public school is not giving what they need, you are failing your child every bit as much as if you took them out and did nothing. Yep. Okay? Secondly, part of the reason why parents feel so intimidated about transferring knowledge onto their kids is because there's an entire industry built around this idea that if you don't have a master's degree from Penn State, then how could you possibly teach you know, certain life lessons or skills to your kid? Or that if they're not going to a particular government institution in order to learn it, there's something wrong with you or you're letting them down. No, there's all kinds of resources that you can get access to, whether it's Khan Academy or whether it's a local co-op or whether it's online resources or whether it's other experiences. But my gosh, if you if this just isn't for you, legitimately isn't for you, I'm not going to be the one to try to compel or force or pressure you to do it. But my gosh, do not let the very people that are doing that, what we just witnessed, don't let them be the ones to intimidate you into suggesting that you don't have what it takes to be able to be involved in your child's education, be an educator, and get them the additional resources and access to people that can help you make them a success. I want to add one more point to what you just said there. And we haven't brought it up once this entire conversation. But one of the other objections to, you know, taking your kids out of public school, I'm sorry, but ask yourself the Democratic legislators that are ruling over us in some of these states and cities, ask them where they're sending their kids. Yeah. I, I ask, where did Barack Obama send his kids? Oh, yeah. Where did, friends. Where did Governor Terry McAuliffe send his kids, who almost got elected to a second term? Mm -hmm. He didn't send his kids to public school. And if he had an issue with public school, why are you supposed to accept it if he didn't accept it for his kids? Mm -hmm. No, it's a great point. It's a great point. Some of the biggest, some of the biggest people screaming about school choice in the state legislature here in Virginia, you go look at where they send their kids to school. And it's like, you know what? I don't want to hear it anymore. I don't want to hear it. if it's good yeah. enough for your kids. It's good enough. I don't for want to hear it kids. from Delegate Van Valkenburg, who complains about how, well, it's our responsibility to have a world class public school. Really? Because he doesn't think it's a world class education system. Or else he would have put his kids in it, yeah. but he doesn't. So I, quite frankly, I'm sick and tired of hearing the argument from teachers unions and from leftist politicians that you're a bigot if you oppose the public school system because by their own logic, they're bigots mm -hmm. because they don't put their kids in the public school system. And I'm sick and tired of people acting like that. We're not allowed to talk about that. Yeah. We absolutely should be allowed to talk about that because it exposes the hypocrisy of the people who want to impose mediocrity on you and your children. And they want to send their kids to the best place they possibly can. You should have a right to do the exact same thing. I don't think you could have summed it up any better. So I just want to, again, I mean, with that, 
I want to encourage everyone, if you, if you like the conversations that we're having here, make sure you like, make sure you subscribe, make sure you share. When you share this to other people, it, it drastically increases the amount of circulation it gets. Also, please leave us comments. If you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you can go in there, you can write us a review. Please leave us a five-star review. If you're on YouTube, leave us some comments in there. We're also trying to get this more on Facebook as well. So wherever I have my social media pages, you can go on there, get access to this program, leave us some comments, interact. We're actually going to be coming up with some more features here going forward that allows for greater interaction as well. Because ultimately, the reason why we're making the argument is to better equip you to be able to make the argument to your friends, family, and to your kids in order to defend a free society. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next episode. Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to goodranchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.